podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. All right, well, good evening, everybody. How are you? Good. We are in part six, week six of the series on First Peter, and uh, this is going to be the last week on it. Next week begins Advent, and we'll have sort of a quasi-standalone talk next week, and then the three weeks following will all be um, specifically related to Advent. But in this series here in First Peter, we've been talking about this letter and kind of the lens we've used as we've read this, as we've studied this, as we've talked about it has been the lens that, that reminds us that Peter is writing to these Gentile congregations in these cities, kind of in the far-flung regions of the Roman Empire. And it might have been very easy for them to feel overlooked. They, they weren't necessarily in the, the more um, prominent cities. Uh, and it might, they might have felt like they were overlooked also because they were certainly the minority of where they lived. They, as believers, as followers of Christ, they were not the power brokers. They were living on the margins. And it's such a fascinating um, study, or to think about this, uh, this idea of being believers, followers of Christ, disciples, and yet being ones who are on the fringe of society. I think sometimes uh, we imagine that if only we could get, and then maybe you'd fill in the blank, if only we could get you know, prayer back in school, or if only we could get the laws changed, or this law changed, and all this stuff, and certainly they may be good causes, but we think in the back of our minds that if we could get... Christians back in the center of power, then everything will be all right. The truth is, the early Christians spent the bulk of their life, if not all their life, living on the fringe, living on the margins, living against the stream of culture. And sometimes, I think, when we get to the place where we are in the center, where we are sort of in the power center of culture, we can fool ourselves into thinking that we've done our job and now we can rest. Uh, some of the church's darkest hours have come when they've been in the center of power. Uh, and some of the church's best hours have come when the church has not been in the center of power. So be careful what you wish for. But I think that the, what Peter is saying to these congregations have an interesting um, relevance for us because he's talking to them and he's asking them to pay attention to the stream of life and to the stream of culture and how, in, in, in what ways can they live against it. There, it's easy sometimes when everything, the externals are kind of right, to forget or to not pay attention to maybe the more subtle, the more subliminal ways uh, that we're sort of going in, going with the grain, going with the flow of the world. It might be easier to pay attention to notice that, wait a second, everything about our life is counter-cultural, is sort of uh, swimming upstream to this. Uh, and yet, at the same time, we wrestle to live within it. Uh, that theme of living within, thriving within a world that requires some measure of confronting and yet may also involve you succeeding in it is the tension that God's people have always faced. Well, I mentioned uh, in one of the weeks uh, how Joseph, on the one hand, is this guy who ascends to a place of power in Egypt, and then later you have Moses who confronts the ruler of Egypt. Or you have Jeremiah going into Babylon being told, wish for the well-being of the city, 
And then God saying, yeah, I'm going to use Cyrus, this Persian king, to, to rebuild Jerusalem. But, oh, wait, I'm going to say judgment on Persia and judgment on Babylon. How can the people of God simultaneously thrive within a culture and yet live against it? That is the challenge, isn't it? And so that's what this whole letter has been about. How can we exist within this, not retreat from it, and even in some ways excel in it, and yet in other ways subvert it? How can we live against it? When I was really young, I don't remember exactly how old, but uh, I I had a stubborn streak um, from an early age. And uh, I, I remember this story, though I don't really remember why I made the decision I did, but there was one particular Saturday where it was going to be a fun family Saturday, and my parents were going off to the market, as they would, and they were going to come back, and we were going to have a nice breakfast together. But before they left, they said, Glenn, would you uh, say, not, your a- not just your ABCs, but would you go through your alphabet and say a word that starts with each letter of the alphabet? Now, you know, I was old enough that I easily could have done this, but for some reason that day, and again, I don't remember what possessed me, uh, but I just, I didn't want to do it. And I just, I refused. And they said, well, Glenn, it's no big deal. Come on, let's just do this. We're just, uh, and I don't know why. This wasn't like a normal part of our Saturday routine. It wasn't like I grew up in the home where we had academic drills every Saturday. But this particular Saturday, uh, I was being asked to do this, and I just didn't want to do it. I didn't want to do it. And uh, my parents don't like this story because it makes, the, it paints them to be sort of um, rather stern. But they weren't. Uh, they were just trying to find a way to motivate me. And so they said, okay, Glenn, look, we're going to market. We're going to bring back this stuff. We're going to have a big breakfast together. But would you just say this, and then we can get on with our day? And I said, no, I don't want to. And I, I don't know why, but I just said, no, I don't want to. And, and there was warning after warning. And then they said, okay, look, if you don't say this, you're not going to get to join us in our breakfast. And I said, fine. <laughs> and it was a sad morning that Saturday. And there's something that remains in me that likes to be the contrarian and likes to maybe be, okay, if everybody's doing this, then I won't do this. I remember when we were living in Tulsa, everybody was going to this particular church on a Friday night. It was the happening church that all the students would go to. And I said, no, I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay back and I'm going to read my textbook or whatever, you know. And, And I don't know what that stubborn streak is, but the Lord is working His sanctifying process. Last night, I, sh- I had this beard that I was growing, and I don't know if you saw this on Facebook, but I, I shaved it all off except that I kept this handlebar mustache, and there was a tiny part of me that said, I'm going to keep that just because. <laughs> but my wife prevailed upon me to not. <laughs> yes, yes. And I don't know what it is, it, it, maybe you can relate to this, but this desire to sort of, well, if everyone's saying this, then pah, fine, I'm not going to. And maybe to some degree that's in all of us, that there is a little bit of that thing in us that says, okay, look, I, 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 I'm going to go against that, I'm going to resist that, I'm going to be counter that. Youth pastors re- recognize that when they have teenagers, uh, that this is, I guess, more common in those years. And so I, I've met youth pastors who try to tap into that and say, oh, well, let me tell you, to be really rebellious is to be holy. You know, culture is saying do this, but a true rebel would not, would read their Bible during lunch break or whatever, you know, and it's like this, the holy rebel kind of concept. And it's almost as if we're trying to tap into that unholy rebellion and force it into something, or christen it, I guess, as a holy rebellion, you know. I I, I would suggest that I think part of growing up in Christ is not 
channeling that same ugly rebellion, but this time it's against the world, I think growing up in Christ is learning a new way of resistance. The talk tonight is called The Resistance. And it may be a song by a band named Muse, but it's also a nice title for our talk. But I say this because I think so many of us buy into the idea that we're supposed to resist. Resist an enemy, resist the devil, resist, resist the world, resist culture. But we do it with, with a kind of rebellion that's not much better than a teenage immature rebellion. And so we sort of protest and, and quote our scriptures and shout all the more loudly, and we think that we are resisting the world. But all we really are are immature teenagers who found a new Christian language. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, here's Peter talking, a witness of Christ's sufferings and one who, is also, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. And so he's saying, look, I know what it, what it means to be an elder in the church, and so I'm writing to you guys that are taking care of all these different churches. And he says to them, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. These are great verses to talk about when you talk about people in leadership positions, elders, pastors, uh, great verses. And he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Somehow, when, we've read the next, when we read the next verse, it's almost as if we lift it from the rest of this chapter. Because the next verse, then, is the more, maybe the better known one. He says, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. Now, most of the time when we talk about, okay, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion, I don't, I don't know, uh, maybe this comes from a passage, I think, in Job where it talks about a lion without his teeth or whatever. And so we've, we've heard in church, they say, oh, well, yes, Satan is a lion, but he's a toothless lion. Well, then how did Peter think he was going to devour us? Was he going to gum us to death, you know? You know? I think the point that Peter's trying to say is there is an enemy, and he can devour you. Be alert. But I wonder if instead of just saying, well, okay, so I'll resist him, and then maybe I just need to learn a few secret prayers for powerful living, and once I pray those prayers, I'll be fine... Maybe instead of thinking of it that way, maybe I wonder if the rest of the, the, the early part of this chapter is Peter setting, an, setting us up for how we resist, how we live in resistance to the enemy. Part of what he might be saying, how do we live in resistance to the enemy? And he starts off by talking about a shepherd. It seems that Peter wants to, us to remember that we have a shepherd, that we're not alone in this, that we're not isolated in this. That first of all, our chief shepherd is Jesus. But look also, he's writing to these fledgling congregations that maybe felt alone. Maybe there were 10, 20 people. And he's saying to them, okay, look, look, look. Even the elders that are there, take care of them. Shepherd them. Watch over them. Maybe part of why Peter's telling younger men to listen to older men 
is to say, look, don't do this bravado thing. Don't do this, I'm going to... You know, look, the, the part of res- living in resistance, part of what helps us live in resistance to the enemy is being part of a fellowship where we have a shepherd. And yes, there is a chief shepherd who is perfect and flawless, but all of us needs a human expression of that. And that's what the elders in a church are supposed to be. That's what a pastor is supposed to be. The same word, pastor, shepherd. Secondly, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. A couple of interesting things about these phrases. That first phrase, clothe yourself with humility, is an expression that that has this picture with it. It's the expression of saying, look, put that apron on. Put the apron on of the household slave. Clothe yourself with humility. Put on the garments of the one who serves in the house. Not the one who thinks that they've got it. Not the one who says, no, you know what, I'm strong, I'm fine. Maybe this is an echo of Paul's letter that says, you who are strong, take heed lest you fall. Clothe yourself with humility. Take the posture, the garments, the clothing, the attitudes of the one who serves. And think of Jesus facing the accusations and staying silent. I think that is so striking to me. Well, Jesus, speak up. Have you nothing to say? Silence. Mighty hand of God, this humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, has an echo of hope to it because that expression, mighty hand of God, is used particularly in the Old Testament Scriptures, particularly in the story of the Exodus. Whenever there were songs recounting or remembering the great deliverance from Egypt, they would say it was God's mighty hand that saved and delivered. And part of what Peter is saying is humble yourself under God's mighty hand. It's not just an acquiescence to suffering. It's not just a, oh well. This is different than the Buddhist idea of saying, well I can't do anything about it. So let it yeah. This is saying under God's mighty hand that there is a God. His hand is mighty. He will deliver. So humble yourself under Him. That this isn't just sort of an abstract kind of humility. That's why the verse goes on and says, so that in due time he may lift you up. I want to reshape for us our picture of in due time. All through this letter, Peter keeps referencing something that's coming. In First Peter, in chapter 1, verse 4, the end of verse 4, he says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, Peter's saying, okay, look, here you are living on the outskirts, living against the grain, and you're suffering for it. You're being mistreated by masters. Maybe you're living in households where, where there's, a, there's a mixture of people that they don't quite understand. They don't share what you share. They don't share these same values. They don't, we're, we're not on the same page here. But yet... There's coming this time that God is keeping this inheritance for you. That's why we talked a few weeks ago about understanding that it's, it's not as some charismatic theology would say, all here, all now, nor is it as some sort of more stoic, maybe Calv- hyper-Calvinist theology would say, it's not here, not now, sit down and be quiet. He's God, you're not. But that we find ourselves saying, there is a God who came and took the full weight of evil upon Himself on the cross, who rose again in victory. There is a God who is, who's promised an inheritance 
a remaking of all things, and that, that, that there is a time when that will explode in fullness. And look, it's leaking out even now. Look, we've, we've, taste, we've foretasted of it even now. So all through this letter, he's saying to a people that are suffering, to a people that feel alone, abandoned, like they're the only ones living against the grain. He's saying, hang on, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. That same mighty hand that rescued Israel out of slavery. Because in due time, that mighty hand is going to rescue you again. Not in a way of evacuation, but in a way of restoration. And we'll get to that by the end of this tonight. And thirdly, this phrase, he says to them, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Part of how we live in resistance is remembering that we have a shepherd, yes. Humbling ourselves, yes. But trusting that God really does care. Trusting that God really does care. Why do we not cast our anxieties on Him? Probably because we're not convinced that He does care. Probably because there's something about Christianity in America that was so heavily shaped by a deistic view of things. That God's up there and we're down here, so doggone it. If we want to eat, we got to plant and we got to work and we got you. And there's truth to that. We're supposed to work hard. But maybe deep down, we don't really believe that He cares. That I've got to take matters into my own hands because I'm not sure God's going to do this. You know, it's, it's... funny on a small level to see this even with our kids. Uh, sometimes our kids will ask us for something and we can't get to it right away. Sometimes. And just the other day, one of our daughters was asking me to, if I could help them open this box. And it, was, it was Jonas, our, our son, turned a year old a couple of days ago. And so we had this box, this cardboard box that I put, we put a little toy in for him and we taped the box. And so and so one of our girls wanted to open the box for Jonas, you know. And she said, Dad, come on, help me open the box. I'm like, just a minute, honey, I'm doing something, you know. And I'm, I don't know what I was doing, but I was doing something. And I look over, and maybe 10 seconds had gone by since her request. And I look over, and there's the scissors opened, and she's trying to stab the tape in the box. I'm like, honey, I said I'll come. And I wonder if that's how we are sometimes. God, would you? Okay, fine, I'll just... Whoa, whoa, whoa. mm, Don't play with the scissors. I care. I'm coming. I hear. I'm aware. God, you're not, you don't remember scissors. (laughs) (laughs) That was profound. I'm really feeling it tonight. It is important to believe that God is not indifferent to our suffering. It is important to know that. To know that His answer to our pain is not, sit down, be quiet, I'm God, you're not. That His answer to our pain is to weep with us. Is to say, I came. I took the weight of evil on myself at the cross. And I'm coming again to make all things new. It's unfair to say to someone who's weeping, well, we don't know. And we don't ask. And we just trust. It's unfair because when Jesus found out that Lazarus, his good friend, was dead, he doesn't cry when he hears the news about Lazarus. 
He doesn't even cry when he sees Martha coming out to him and wanting to have a discussion about when the resurrection will happen. You know when Jesus cries? It's when Mary comes to meet him. Do you know why? Because Mary's crying. Because Mary's crying. She falls at his feet and says, Lord, Lord, if you had been here. And it says, and Jesus wept. It's important to believe that God is moved by your pain. He's not indifferent to it, that he has a plan. That we're not told to just sit down and be quiet. But we are told to cast our cares on him. That verb, to cast, is this throw, kind of very active, very decisive action. Discovered that worry and anxiety doesn't just dissipate. You have to consciously say, all right, throw this at your face. Maybe that's a good exercise in your prayer time to say, this thing that is weighing on me, this thing that I'm worried about, I'm going to picture it, and I'm going to picture me throwing it to the one who does care, to the one who has taken the weight of evil on himself, to the one who is moved by our pain. Last part of this living in resistance thing is Peter's phrase, be alert and of sober mind. To be aware, to be watchful, to be alert, to be aware. We remember that we have a shepherd. We humble ourselves. We trust in a God who cares. And then we learn to be aware, to be alert. I think there's a couple ways that we could take this for us and say, what might that look like? I think part of being aware and being alert certainly is to tend to the things and the relationships in our life. That the, the, the way that the infection of evil in our world makes it is that if you want something to deteriorate, do nothing. If you want something to shrivel, pay no attention to it. And there's, maybe there's something in this be aware and alert and of a sober mind that says recognize, evaluate, What's happening in our, in our relationships? What's happening in my friendships? What's happening with my kids? What's happening with our marriage? What, wait, wait, whoa, 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 what's going on? There? Wait, I didn't, I didn't realize that I've been like that. I didn't realize that that's how I've been acting. Well, I didn't, well, I didn't realize that I was... Have I really been that preoccupied when you're trying to talk to me? Is that really... Is that really uh, be aware of that. But another part of this be aware, and maybe closer to what Peter's readers might have, uh, how they might have applied it, is this sense of saying, wait a minute, see the ways in which you're being pressed to live a certain way. And be aware of that. Be aware of how that's creeping in. I think that the most dangerous ways the enemy works are not the obvious ones. We have great crusades and campaigns and causes against the obvious, quote-unquote, evils of society, on our way to more debt at the mall, or on our way to more consumption by every commercial we see, every tantalizing Mac commercial where the camera slowly pans on that silver tapering MacBook Air with epic music. Is that drool? And meanwhile, we want to rid society of all of its ills, and we think of the evils on TV. Well, maybe the most insidious evil thing is the one that happens for 30 seconds 
in between the shows we watch. The evil of avarice, of greed, of saying, well, I want that, I need that, I got it, well, what about this? Well, it is Christmas. How can we be aware of all that that's creeping in? How can we be aware of trying to do work in a culture that says, do whatever it takes to get the deal done, but you know that what it takes to get the deal done means depersonalizing someone, means using someone. Can you be aware then? I talked to a friend who's just about had it in his environment in a particular bank because he's saying, I just can't do it. They don't treat their people well. They don't treat our customers well. It's just, it's all about pushing these numbers. And I, I'm, I've done it for a year. I'm done. I'm, 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 I kind of want out. And sometimes that may be the decision. More often, maybe, the question is, how do I function within this? How can I be aware of what's pressing in? In what ways does saying that Jesus is king and the systems of this world is not? In what way does that mean your life should be different? What bearing does that have? Does it have any bearing on the way that we talk with people? Does it have any bearing on the way that we do business, do work, get clients? Does it have any bearing on any of that? Or is Jesus a private religion that we sort of escape to on Sundays and then return to the real world tomorrow? Peter's saying living in resistance means being aware that that, there's, that, that enemy is prowling in, 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 in the most unsuspected places. That there are ways that are tempting you to use people, depersonalize, dehumanize, ignore, be selfish. There's things lurking in conversations where you'd be tempted to say, well, hey, let me tell you about what I'm doing. There's something to be aware of. But if this is discouraging at all to you, it may be helpful to remember that Peter failed on all of these. Every single one of these things, Peter failed at. In Matthew, actually we'll, we'll start with Luke's gospel. Luke 22, verse 31, as Jesus' time on earth is winding down, he says, Simon, Simon, of course, Simon Peter, he's talking to Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And, that when, you, and when you turn, have turned back, strengthen your brothers. This is interesting. Satan desires to sift you, but I've prayed for you. But when you turn back, implying that you will turn back, away. But I'm praying for you, so you will turn back. And when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. I wonder if Peter's saying, there's an enemy who prowls around like a roaring, like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Peter's saying, oh, I remember some 25 years ago when Jesus said, Peter, Satan desires to sift you like wheat. He wants to crush you. It's not, we're not playing games here. There is an enemy who intends to destroy. Peter was, shortly after that moment, was himself without a shepherd, or at least he felt like he was without one. 
And Jesus said it in Matthew 26, 31. Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter knew what it was like to have this person that he looked at as a shepherd and to see that man being taken away and to feel like he was stuck and lost without a shepherd. Peter knew what it was like to not be humble, but to be proud of his own devotion. The very next verse, Jesus says, But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And Peter replies, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Peter knew what it was like to be without a shepherd. He knew what it was like to be full of this pride and arrogance, proud of his own devotion, proud of his own commitment. I can do this. I'll never. No way. Not me. Peter also knew what it was like to be so overwhelmed with anxiety that he took matters into his own hands, quite literally. John 18, verse 10, Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup my father has given me? Here's Peter saying, wait, 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 wait. No, they can't arrest you. No, no, no. I just said you're the Messiah like a little bit ago and you said, yes, you're, you're right. But Messiah means that you're going to restore Israel and, and, and defeat Israel's enemies. And how can you defeat the enemies of God if Rome, enemies of God, are now arresting you? Okay, well, I see you're not going to do anything about it. Well, I've got a sword. It's the scissors thing. Only for Peter, it's a sword. And he cuts off someone else's ear. Which, just as an aside, all three of the synoptics don't mention, none of the three synoptics mention who the disciple was that cut off the high priest's servant's ear. They all say one of the disciples. There's something with this John and Peter thing. You know, John just is like, hey, it was Peter. You know. John's also the one that tells us Later in his gospel, that, that he might be the one that lives again, that might live again until Jesus comes. But Peter is going to suffer, you know. So I, I, I don't know what was happening between John and Peter. But, but John tells us it was Peter. No mystery here who it was. It was Peter. He knew what it was like to be without a shepherd. He knew what it was like to be so proud of his own devotion. He knew what it was like to be so overwhelmed by anxiety that he took matters into his own hands. And it continues. He also knew what it was like to not be alert or watchful. Matthew 26, 40 to 42. And Jesus returned to his disciples and found them sleeping and said, Could you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Could you not be alert? Couldn't you stay? Couldn't you be? It's funny that 25 years or so later, Peter's writing to these congregations and saying, remember, there's a shepherd. Humble yourself. Don't be so sure of your own bravado, spiritual bravado. And, 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 and please, cast your cares on God. He does care. You don't have to pull your sword out. Start cutting people's ears off. And, and, and be alert. Be watchful. This is how we live in resistance. But listen to this next verse, 
in his letter. Verse 10, and the God of all grace. Now that Greek conjunction for and could just as easily be translated but. And I think but might read a little better. Because he says, resist, he's talking about the enemy, the devil, resist him. And he'll, you know, stand firm in your faith because of your brothers, they're suffering. And he says, but the God of all grace. Look, I, I, I know what it's like, maybe he's saying, to not. I know what it's like to maybe have the enemy start to seep in, starting to devour you. But, 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 but the God of all grace who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. But the God of all grace. So here we are tonight. And maybe you say, well, you know what? I, I, if I think about it, I think there are ways where I've you know, not been um, you know, living in resistance. I've been sort of, uh, you know, I've kind of been sloppy, kind of been lazy, and I know that I'm not paying attention to what it really means to follow King Jesus, what that means for my... I, I know that. I know that there's pride. I know it. But what do I do? What do I do if I've found myself maybe beaten up through this battle? What happens if in trying to live in resistance, we've gotten some scars? What if in trying to live against the grain of culture, there's some battle wounds? Things we haven't done perfectly. Times where we have failed times when it sure feels like the enemy feasted on something. But the God of all grace will restore you. You know that word restore, again, is our echo, is our, is our not our echo, our foreshadow of the future. So that word restore is that means to set in order, to bring back, to set in order. I, 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 I appreciate when people tell me, hey, you know, I, I, um, I lost my job a couple years ago, but now we've got a different one and we're doing great and just feel like the Lord is restoring us. I, I, I appreciate that and I believe in that and I think that's wonderful. But there's a massive, much more massive restoration that's coming. There's a much bigger reversal that's coming. It's much bigger than saying, well, you know, I was out of work. now. That's great. I don't want to invalidate that. That's, that's meaningful. But do you know that that is just a hint of the massive restoration that's coming? Peter's saying, how can you continue to live in resistance even when there have been battle wounds and scars? How can you continue? Because the God of all grace will restore you in due time. In the end, he's going to set it back in order, and somehow retroactively, this God will undo the sting of all evil. Corinthians says, and death is the last enemy, but it will be defeated. It's lousy to say death is our friend. Oh, well, it's great. I mean, it's fine that that so and so died. They're not suffering anymore? Well, that's true. But doggone it, death is our enemy. The Bible says it. We don't have to be afraid of admitting that. 
It is an enemy. But it's an enemy that in the end will be swallowed up in victory. It's an enemy that in the end will be defeated. The last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15, to be defeated is death, and Jesus will defeat it. There's coming this day when the God of all grace will restore and make you strong and make you firm and make you steadfast and will retroactively undo all that has gone wrong in this world. Do you believe it? And if you believe it, does that give you strength for the resistance? If you believe it, does that give you strength for the resistance? I pray that it does. I pray that this picture that Peter had when he was writing this letter permeates our hearts, shapes our imagination, so that when we want to go with the flow of things, we go, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm going to be aware. I'm going to be alert. I'm going to humble myself under God's mighty hand. I'm going to cast my cares on Him. I'm going to remember that I have a shepherd. And I'm going to live this resistance because I know what's coming. I know who's coming. I know the end. There's a lion prowling now, but there's a lion of Judah who comes at the end, victorious, triumphant, victorious. I share in his victory. And because I do, I can live in resistance to this tawny little lion. I can do that. As we pray tonight, I want our prayer to be that the Holy Spirit would wake us up to see this. To wake us up to remind us that we are, in a sense, colonizing earth with the culture of heaven. (laughs) Colonizing earth with the culture of heaven living as citizens from a different kingdom while infiltrating and subverting this one. That's what living the resistance means. Not going and trying to chase the evils of society and reform. Maybe some of that, if it's right. But the spirit of our resistance is not one of rebellion. The spirit of our resistance is one of humility and confidence in the God of all grace. What does that resistance look like in your workplace? What does that resistance look like when you're having a lunchtime conversation with some colleagues or a quick drink with some friends? What, what does that resistance look like there? What does that resistance look like when you come home and you're tired and all you want to do is just get the kids to and just say, wait, whoa, 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 no, no, no. I want to be alert. And with humility, my resistance is not seen in my anger and my spiritual warfare. My resistance is seen in how I don't respond. It's seen in how I forgive. It's seen in how I love. It's seen in how I'm humble. It's seen in how I trust the God of all grace who will restore us in the end. So, Father, may your spirit flood our hearts Tonight, may you fill us again in a fresh way, Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see what we can't see on our own. Give us strength to live with the kind of resistance that smells like Jesus. 
Not one of violence and aggression and anger, but one of humility and surrender and trust and forgiveness, kindness, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Make us people who live against the grain, not as obnoxious crusaders. Oh, Father, but as loving servants waiting for the King. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.